0: Today's scripture focus is from Luke 15. It is a little bit longer, but man, it is good. So I'm going to take some intentional pauses throughout so that we can reflect um, and just have a moment to, to let it sit. So Luke 15, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together saying to them, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Or what woman who has 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. He also said, a man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up, and he went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And then he became angry. And didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him? Son, he said to him. You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of God.
1: Before I'm one of the elders here. Oh, there we go. <laughs> and... Uh... I'm married to a, a brilliant woman called Debs, and um, about a month after I married Debs, I woke up one morning, and I couldn't find my wedding ring anywhere. Now, obviously, not ideal, right? A month into marriage, already lost my ring. If you know me, that's not necessarily a surprise, but it's not, it's not a good thing, right? And obviously, I turned over our little small apartment, looking everywhere, trying to find my wedding ring. and I couldn't find it anywhere after hours and hours and hours and hours of searching. And Debs and I, our working theory was that it must have come off in the shower maybe and then gone down the plug hole into the the sewer system. We even actually took apart some of the pipes to have a look. Couldn't find it there either. Now, imagine my surprise. It's a year later. We've moved house. I'm unpacking my clothes. And as I'm going through, I see a flash of gold in the bottom of one of the suitcases. This suitcase had been under our bed in our previous apartment, so absolutely no idea how it got there. The working theory was that I took it off and threw it against the wall, and it bounced in in there. Again, like, not great, right? Throwing your wedding ring across the room is, yeah, not ideal. But that was kind of how we um, figured it had got there. And honestly, I can't describe to you how I felt when I was restored to my wedding ring. And you might be thinking, why aren't you wearing it now? Well, sadly, it doesn't fit anymore, so... (laughs) Which, is, which would be good, because obviously if, I, if it was on and it didn't fit anymore, I'd never lose it again. But, I mean, you know, it's on my to-do list to um, have it melted down and and So, that's why I'm not wearing it right now. So. <laughs> so, our passage for today, it focuses on God's heart for lost people. And the joy that he experiences every time that one sinner repents. Let me quickly pray for us before we dive in. Lord God, we thank you for these three parables. And we thank you um, that they open up a door into your heart for, for lost people. Uh, the length that you'll go to find lost people. And then the joy that you have when lost people are found and brought home. So I pray that you deeply, deeply um, challenge and change our hearts with these words. In your name. Amen. So these three parables in Luke chapter 15... They're among the most famous of all of Jesus' sayings, and for good reason, because they give us a window into God's posture towards broken people, possibly more so than any other chapter in our Bibles. And as we've seen throughout Luke's gospel, which we've been going through for quite a while now, one of the major themes is salvation, and our chapter for today gives us a rare glimpse into the joy in heaven upon a person's salvation. Chapter 15, it begins a new section in Luke's gospel. And it comes right off the back of a a section that's all about discipleship. And Jesus says in no uncertain terms that following him is hard. He repeatedly warns his listeners. He says, look, if you want to follow me, take up your cross, renounce your family, your possessions, even your own life, and then follow me on the narrow road to salvation. It's interesting then that chapter 15 opens with these words. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. So rather than being pushed away by Jesus' uncompromising teaching, sinful people were actually drawn to him, and they, they were eager to hear more, about what he had to say. They must have seen and sensed something in Jesus that kept them coming back for more. And I found this challenging personally because sadly, the church, the Big C Church, has often been a place where those who are acutely aware of their own brokenness don't feel welcome. My prayer Is that as we become more like Jesus through the transforming work of his spirit, we will greater display the qualities that the tax collectors and sinners saw in Jesus. And that the Hallows would be known as a place where broken people feel drawn in and welcomed, because in us, they see other broken people who have met Jesus. Jesus' treatment of the tax collectors and sinners drew complaints from the religious leaders who were present. Verse 2 says, And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, This, mal- this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Oh, it's double-sided. <laughs> Sorry. All right, that's, that's going to take a little bit of getting used to. I thought that was single-sided. Double-sided. Okay. Phew! I was worried there for a moment. If the tax collectors and sinners saw something in Jesus... That attracted them, then the opposite can be said of the Pharisees and the scribes. They hated the fact that Jesus got so close to the very people they worked so hard to exclude. In the religious leaders' eyes, the sinners and the tax collectors were the lowest of the low, and they have forfeited their life with God by continually breaking his laws and acting unjustly. It appalled the religious leaders. That Jesus ate with such people and they couldn't contain their disgust. In response to their complaint, Jesus launches into his three parables. Now I want to highlight this at this point. Jesus tells three parables, not just the one. Now, from what we know of Jesus, from what we've seen of Jesus in Luke's gospel, Jesus is very economical with his words. He's able to tell a story in just a few short verses that opens up this whole world for us to to dive in and explore. So why does Jesus tell three separate stories, each with such a similar point, when he could have just told the one? As we make our way through each parable, I believe the answer to that question will present itself to us. Let's begin with the first of the three, the parable of the lost sheep. This parable draws on familiar imagery for Jesus' first century listeners who lived in an agricultural society, that of a shepherd and their sheep. The shepherd in Jesus' parable has a hundred sheep and he loses one. And even though the likelihood of finding that sheep alive is low, he leaves the 99 and he goes looking for the one. Roaming the open country. The shepherd doesn't give up until he finds the sheep. And when he does, we read in verse 5 that he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and carries it all the way home. Upon his arrival, he calls his friends and neighbors together. They have a party, celebrating over the safe return of the lost sheep. What is Jesus teaching the Pharisees and the scribes about God? Firstly, Jesus is showing them what good shepherds do. There's a rebuke here for the Pharisees, who as leaders of the spiritual community were supposed to take care of all the flock, all the people in their care. The Pharisees are far too concerned with who's on the inside, not on those who are on the outside. Second, Jesus is drawing on Old Testament imagery which describes God. Ezekiel 34 is all about God as the true shepherd. Verses 11 to 12 particularly resonate with Jesus' first parable. It says this, For this is what the Lord God says. See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep, on the day he is among his scattered flock, so I will look for my flock. Thirdly, according to the scriptures, not only is shepherd used as an image of God, but Jesus also uses it of himself. John ten, eleven says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So Jesus' first parable is highlighting God as the good shepherd who goes to great lengths to find and rescue his lost sheep. And if God is the shepherd, then we are to identify with the sheep who have a tendency to wander away from the flock and from the shepherd and find themselves hopelessly lost. We see this language being used of us in Isaiah 53 verse 6. Which says, we all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way. This is one of the many images in the Bible for sinful humanity. And we sing of this truth in the third verse of Robert Robinson's, great name by the way, 18th century hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. We sing this, prone to wonder, Lord I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Left to our own devices, this is the way we all go, right? We leave the good shepherd. We wander. We go astray. We think we'll do better in other pastures, only to find ourselves in the wild, open country, exhausted and helpless, completely unable in our own strength, To make our way home. The good news of Jesus' first parable. Is that God the Father sent his son. The good shepherd. With a clear mission. Outlined later in the book of Luke. Chapter 19 verse 10. The son of man has come to seek. And save the lost. Jesus the chief shepherd. Came to seek out his lost sheep. Note the language Jesus uses when the sheep. It's finally found. Verse 5. When he found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. When Jesus finds us in our helpless state, he doesn't put a leash around our neck and drag us home. No. He's bursting with joy as he hoists us up onto his shoulders. Taking our full weight, he carries us every step of the way home. The party that the shepherd throws when he returns is a picture of the great celebration in heaven that God and the heavenly host throw every time a lost sinner is brought home by the ministry of the chief shepherd, Jesus. When Debs and I lived in London, we volunteered with a charity called Christians Against Poverty. And it specialized in helping vulnerable people out of crippling debt by negotiating with creditors and debt collection agencies, and then setting clients up with a a realistic budget to get them out of debt and then keep them out of debt. And I once visited the headquarters of this charity, and it was a huge open-plan office space. And I noticed a huge brass bell that was hanging up on the wall. And I later learned that every time the head office receives a call that another client is debt-free, they loudly ring the bell and everyone jumps to their feet, celebrating together that another person no longer has to live under the crippling weight of debt. This is a faint shadow of heaven's reaction when Jesus carries another lost sinner home on his shoulders. According to Jesus, heaven is going off. It's bouncing. The noise is deafening. The joy is unspeakable. This outpouring tells us how precious we are to God and our infinite worth in his eyes. Jesus says, there's more joy over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. Now, this is likely a rhetorical statement from Jesus. Scripture tells us so clearly, Romans 3, 10, that there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no such thing As a person who doesn't need to repent before God. The Pharisees perhaps thought that they didn't need repentance, that they had earned good standing with God through their observance of the law. But they were unable to see something that Jesus saw in them. This teaches us that all people need Jesus, but only some people recognize that need. Let's move on to the second parable and see how it complements the first. Jesus' second parable involves a woman who loses a silver coin. A study of the Greek shows that this coin is a drachma, which is about a day's wages. And we learn that this coin was one of only ten coins that she had, meaning her coin represents a 10% loss of all she had compared with the 1% loss for the shepherd. Just like the shepherd, the woman begins a diligent search for the coin, lighting a lamp, sweeping the house until she finds it. And again, in very similar language to the first story, she invites her friends and neighbors over to share in the joy that she had when she found that lost coin. Although the first two parables are similar in many ways, the differences teach us more about God's heart for the lost and add another layer of meaning when we hold them up both together. So, how do these two parables differ? Well, the major difference is that what is lost in each story. In the first parable, we have a living organism that's capable of moving and thinking independently of the shepherd, And then in the second story, we have an inanimate object that is lost. The coin has no life of its own. It's just a coin. It can't call out to its owner to alert her where it lies. can't move out from the shadows so that it can be found more easily. The coin is lifeless and inanimate. And so all the work in finding the coin must be done by the woman. What does this mean? Well, remember who the coin represents. It represents helpless sinners like you and me. The Bible is full of verses that teach us That before a person is miraculously saved by God, that person is dead and lifeless, just like the lost coin. Totally unable to contribute anything to being found and saved. Consider Ephesians 2, verse 1, and then Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. Verse 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and then jump into verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, has made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Before a person is saved by God, according to the scriptures, they are dead and lifeless, like this lost silver coin. For a, before a person can even come to God in repentance, there must be a miraculous work done by God. Thank God then that he has the power to awaken our hearts to respond to him. Jesus says this in no uncertain terms in John 6:44. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now we turn to the third parable. It's by far the longest and most detailed and further builds on what Jesus has already highlighted in the first two parables. The third parable begins with a man who had two sons, the younger of whom asked him for his share of the estate. Now this would have brought gasps from the crowd. This is shocking what Jesus is saying. And it's almost unheard of. It, didn't, it wasn't impossible, but it was almost unheard unheard of because a father's estate would only have been divided up upon his death so this younger son is essentially saying I can't wait for you to die give me what's mine now even more shocking than the request is the fact that the father actually responds by graciously agreeing Again, people would have been like, what? Like, he said yes to that request. It was ridiculous. People would have been shocked by, by those words. The father graciously agrees and gives the son the assets that were due to him. Now, in Jewish law, a younger son would receive half of what the older son would get. So it would amount to around a third of the estate, which would have been a large sum of money. Because the father is clearly a wealthy man. He, he's got land, he's got livestock, he's got many servants. So a third of all he had would have been a lot. And as soon as he gets it, the younger son wastes no time. He liquidates his assets and he leaves for a distant country. It's not hard to see the point that Jesus is making in the opening details of his third parable. Jesus is artfully painting a picture here of every sinner's life. Sinners say to God, like the Son says to the Father, I want your good things, but I don't want you. I'm not interested in you. In fact, I wish you were dead. Sinners put as much distance between themselves and God as possible. We push into the margins of our lives, seeking independence from Him. We are like perpetual college students in their first semester in a far off state, thousands of miles from their parents. We crave anonymity, we crave freedom from restraints, we crave an existence where no one tells us how to live. Let's jump back into the parable and see what happens next. Verses 13 and 14 say, Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. The language language here is so evocative. The Greek words that our translations render squander, it literally means to scatter or disperse. So the younger son was throwing his father's money away, burning through his inheritance at such a rate that he might as well have just tossed all his money in the air on a windy day. He is spending quickly, and he's also spending foolishly. He isn't investing the father's hard-earned money. He's blowing it all, partying hard, night after night after night. Unsurprisingly, it doesn't take him long to hit his last dollar. And to make matters worse, a severe famine hits. And as the famine takes hold, he finds himself with nothing to show for the inheritance that his father gave him. This vivid picture of the younger son's foolish excess is like the sinful life. Life is the most precious gift we receive from God. And it's a tragedy when human beings take the life that God has so kindly gifted them and then waste it, chasing after that which does not satisfy. Things go from bad to worse for the youngest son. The only job he can get is feeding pigs. Animals that were declared unclean in the Jewish law, Jesus mentions this to show that he's literally hit rock bottom. The pigs have more food than he does. In verse 17, we see that he finally came to his senses. This moment proves to be a decisive moment in this young man's life. He'd been sliding downhill until he hit rock bottom. And now he begins his journey back up and out of the pit that he had dug for himself. He comes to a realization that his father's son, their servants have it better than he does. And so he hatches this plan. A plan to return to his father, confess his sin, and then ask his father if he would make him like one of his servants. And that's exactly what he does. Remember... He's in a far-off country. He has no money. So he would have had to walk every last step back to his father along the rough, stony, and dusty roads. Towards the end of the son's journey, the focus moves away from the son, and the focus then squarely is put on the father. Pick it up with me in verse 20. It says... While the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. Let's pause here. As this this one verse, it tells us so much about the heart of God for you and me. The first thing to note is the father saw him while he was still a long way off. Now, what does that mean? That means that the the father must have been regularly looking out, training his eyes on that road that leads off into the distance, training his eyes on that one chance that maybe his son would return. Just think for a moment about the pain and loss that his father had suffered all the while his younger son was away. Not only had he lost a third of his estate, but he'd also lost one of his two precious sons. For all you parents in the room, you will understand much better than I will about the fierce burning love that you feel for your children and how indescribably painful it would be to lose a child. Remember, in the first parable, the shepherd loses 1% of his flock the woman the second parable she loses 10% of all she had and here we have a father who lost one of his two sons Jesus is deliberately heightening the emotion in his last parable as the father in this story had lost something truly precious truly priceless in the form of his younger son Imagine with me the moment that the father is looking out to the horizon, perhaps for the one-thousandth time since his son had turned his back and left. And as he squints against the harsh glare of the sun, he sees a faint figure appear. And as the son moves a few steps closer, the father detects something unmistakable. Maybe it was his son's height. Maybe it was the way his son walked. Perhaps it was the curve of his neck and shoulders. Whatever it was, the father knew in that moment that this was none other than his son. Think about how intimately the father must have known his son to detect him from such a long way off. when he is sure that it is his son, Jesus tells us he ran. Now, this wasn't something that dignified older men in that culture would have done, but he doesn't care. He doesn't care how it looks. doesn't care what people are going to say. He hikes up his robe, exposing his bony old chins, and he runs as fast as he possibly can towards his younger son. When he gets to the son... He must have almost knocked him over with his embrace. The Greek literally means he fell upon his neck. The father dives into a full-blown bear hug. And even in an intimate detail from Jesus, he kisses him. A tender display of affection. Let's pause here for a moment. Remember, The religious elite made up half of Jesus' audience. And as Jesus gets to this point in his parable, where the father and son are to be reunited, it is likely that there were murmurs of disapproval, maybe even howls of protest, as Jesus describes the father's embrace of his lost son. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes, they knew the scriptures inside out. So when they heard that the son was heading home, their minds would have gone to Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21, which permits a father, in extreme cases, to put to death a son who has acted in a consistently rebellious manner, bringing shame on his parents. The Pharisees and scribes, they would have seen compelling evidence for the father To have his son stoned to death. He had acted rebelliously. He had acted like he wanted his father dead. He had taken his father's hard-earned money and he'd thrown it all away. He had brought shame and suffering upon his parents. In the Pharisees' eyes, death was what this son deserved. Imagine their surprise then. The father is motivated by compassion and not retribution. The father's actions are the opposite of what the Pharisees were expecting would happen. The father's outpouring of love upon his lost son would have been utterly shocking to Jesus' first century listeners. On the other hand, at this point in the story... You can imagine the the sinners and the tax collectors leaning in with mouths wide open as Jesus paints a mental picture of God's heart for them. You see, sinful people usually have a keen sense of their unworthiness before God. Last Sunday, our visiting preacher, Keith Carpenter, I mean, what a legend Keith Carpenter is, by the way. Love that guy. Um, I also find it I find it funny that we've had, <laughs> we've had two visiting speakers. One of them was last name was Shepherd, and the other one was Carpenter. I just think that's amazing. And Keith last week he, he he told us about his um his old punk rock friend. He actually like walked down and he was saying it amongst everyone. Everyone's like hanging on his every word. And he's saying, "Yeah, I know this punk rock guy." And he once told me that he said, he, "I could never accept that God would love me." I'd, I'd ne- I could never accept God's forgiveness because you just don't know the life that I've lived. You do not know how great my debt to God is. But the truth is, just like Keith's punk rock friends, we're all helplessly indebted to our Father God. The first half of Romans 6:23 reads, for the wages of sin is death. This means for every single one of us, Like the younger son, we should face the legal penalty of death for the way we've treated our Father God. Praise God then for the second half of Romans 6.23, which reads, But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Salvation is a gift from God, our infinitely loving Heavenly Father, Rather than eternal death, he gives us eternal life in Christ Jesus. We shouldn't miss the detail in Romans 6.23 that our eternal life comes to us in Christ Jesus. See, the Bible tells us that God is perfectly loving, but he's also perfectly just at the same time. How then, when the just punishment for our sin is death, Are we the ones that receive eternal life? The answer is that God, who unlike the father in this parable, only has one son who he's enjoyed fellowship with for all eternity. He sent him off into a distant land to live a blameless life among those who want God dead. Only to then be subject to the punishment laid out in Deuteronomy 21. Jesus, the unswervingly obedient son, dies the death of a disobedient, rebellious son. Why? So that every rebellious child of God could be spared that same fate and instead be gifted. Freely the reward for Jesus' perfect obedience. God upholds his His fatherly love and his righteous justice in this way. Jesus was hung on a tree, cursed by God, so that you and I could hang limp in the arms of our Heavenly Father, receiving his scandalous grace. The Son doesn't say a word until the father is done with his embarrassing display of affection the father won't listen to a word until they're done embracing and when the tears have finally abated when they manage to wrench themselves apart the son finally gets to give a speech that he's been waiting to give all this time and he says this in verse 21 father I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So the son, he finally gets to say what he's been rehearsing. He tells the father that he's sinned against him and against God. And he acknowledges that he's no longer worthy to be called a son. Friends, this is repentance. It's a picture of repentance. Repentance literally means a 180 degree turn. So to repent means to acknowledge that you're heading in the wrong direction and then decide to make a clean break with that way of living and then turn back towards God. The son came to his senses as he slipped into starvation, surrounded by pigs, and he chose to turn back and return to his father. Repentance involves confession before God that we have deeply wronged him and that we come empty handed to him the father's reaction though to the son's confession is striking because once the son has repented the father kind of cuts in and he won't let him speak another word and he orders that his servants bring him the best robe a ring for his finger And sandals for his feet. The son was right in saying he was no longer worthy to be called his father's son. But the father's actions speak louder than any words could. The robe and the ring and the sandals they're deeply symbolic. The robe covers the shame of the son, who is likely wearing tattered rags, or he might have even been naked, with his bones visible through his skin from the famine and the starvation that he'd endured. The ring is a sign of dignity, and it often bore the family seal, showing that he was back where he belonged. The sandals would have brought relief to his bare feet, which are likely torn to shreds at this point. A sign of the Father's attention and care for his needs. Do you see what Jesus is communicating here? He's saying that no matter how shameful your sin is, no matter how much you've degraded yourself, no matter how much you've wandered, God's response doesn't just stop at forgiveness. It goes a step further. And he makes us his sons and daughters. Remember the end of the son's speech he'd rehearsed. He wanted to say to his father, make me like one of your hired workers. The son wanted to to start at the bottom and then work with every fiber of his being to earn back his father's love and trust. When he's about to speak these words, the father interrupts. Quick, the father says, Restore this man to where he belongs. He doesn't have to lift a finger to earn my love. It is mine to freely gift to him. This is how God treats us. He won't hear a word of how we'll pay him back for our sins. He waves away our pleas to contribute, to make amends, to earn his love. He silences us by telling us that we are his children. And he has done everything to cover our shame, to restore our dignity, and to care for our wounds. After clothing the son, the father orders a huge feast, killing the fattened calf, which was usually kept back for the most special of occasions. So like, like a wedding or something like that. The father is so overcome with joy upon his son's return, that he goes all out and he throws the mother of all parties. This language mirrors that of the first two parables and it communicates the joy in heaven when a sinner repents and comes home. Think about it for a moment. When you gave your life to Jesus, heaven erupted in song. God cannot contain his delight when we return to him. He goes all out in his celebration of our redemption. Now we come to the final act in Jesus' parable, which focuses on the older brother. The older son, he's out in the fields, working hard like he did every day. And as the night draws near, he takes his tired body on his daily walk back to his father's house. But tonight, something is different. Faintly at first, he can hear music and he can hear the sound of people's feet as they dance. And he learns that his brother is home and that his father has thrown a huge party for him. Let's pick it up in verse 28. It says, then he became angry and didn't want to go in, so his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving for many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, he slaughtered the fattened calf for him. This is the part in Jesus' parable that was directed solely the religious leaders and Jesus as always artfully reveals what is going on in their heart of hearts firstly in the older son Jesus exposes the religious leaders motives in serving God the older son spits at his father look I've been slaving 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 the older son sees serving his father as slaving. this communicates a lack of any joy or delight in working for his father the older son describes his work as backbreaking toil and in his eyes his father hasn't given him anything in return for his efforts my wife debs made this comment in response to this verse. Slaving is all of the work for none of the reward. And this is precisely how the older son feels. See, the older son treated the father in a very similar way to his younger brother. He wasn't interested in a relationship with his father. He just wanted to work hard enough to get his father's stuff. The two sons, both in their own way, treat their father like a vending machine. I'm interested in your stuff, but I don't want you, they say. Jesus is highlighting the major problem with religion namely, that it's possible to be good enough, holy enough, and righteous enough to earn your salvation. This is why the older son is so furious with his father as he sees how his younger son has treated his father and he's seen how much shame and how much misery it's brought on his family the older son used slavery language all of the work none of the rewards no wonder he was beside himself when the younger son who did none of the work somehow gets a lavish reward. The scandalous grace of God is an affront to the religious who see a perverse injustice when someone who has lived a horrendously sinful life repents and then is not only forgiven but made a son or a daughter of God. How does the father respond to his older son? Verse 31. Son, he said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father points out that the older son was slaving for something that he already had. Every day he awoke in the father's house. He ate the father's food. He tended the father's land. If he wanted to have a party with his friends, all he had to do was ask his father, who, as we've seen in this parable, is generous and kind towards his sons. The older son didn't want anything for free, though. And this is another thing about religion Jesus is highlighting. Religious people want the satisfaction that they have earned what they receive from God, so that they can rank themselves above those who didn't work as hard. Therefore, religious people cannot celebrate the grace of God at work in the, line, in the lives of those around them, especially those that they would labored, label sinners. We do not know whether the older son chose to enter the party, or remain on the outside? I think Jesus leaves us on a cliffhanger for a reason. He wants his religious hearers to ask themselves how they want the story to end, and how they want their own story to end. Will they repent of their attitudes towards God and towards those that they label sinners? Will they repent of their motives in obeying God? Not as joyful a response, but as a means to demand his blessing. If you've been a Christian for a long time, there is a warning here. That we do not become like the religious leaders in our view of God and in our disdain for the gospel. Friends, we never graduate from the gospel. We never reach a higher level of Christianity where the gospel no longer applies to us, but only to lowly sinners. Maturity in the Christian life is actually a process of going deeper and deeper and deeper into the knowledge of how wretched and pitiful we really are and how much we've squandered the lives that God has given us. But as we grow in our knowledge of our state without Jesus, that makes us all the more grateful for the depths of grace that has been shown us and is continually being shown to us. A friend of mine told me a while ago about visiting an elderly pastor with whom he was a friend and who he deeply loved. And really admired. And he visited him him in hospital. And one day, he went into his room. And he told me that his elderly pastor friend was in tears. And he was like, you know, what's wrong? Like, you know, why are you crying? And his elderly pastor friend said, he said, I can't stop looking lustfully at the nurse that's looking after me. my friend was stunned as he never ever thought he'd hear his hero in the faith utter such words. But as they talked further, he was actually deeply encouraged by the interaction as his pastor friend, though an inspiring man of God, was still being real about the fact that he was a sinner in constant need of the grace of God. You see, the Christian life, it involves a strange tension. We're becoming increasingly aware of the depths of our sin, but simultaneously becoming increasingly aware of the depths of God's fatherly love for us. The Bible teaches us that we are sinners and saints simultaneously. This parable teaches us that we are simultaneously sinners and sons simultaneously, sinners and daughters. Praise God for his tender, tender care for us. Praise God that he doesn't just stop at forgiveness, as wonderful as that is, but goes so much further in covering our shame, restoring our dignity, caring for our wounds, making us his sons and daughters. Praise him that he doesn't order us to go and earn Our blessings in the fields, but he adopts us into his family, throwing a huge party for us. Jesus died not just so that we could be legally right before God. The cross means that we can know our sins are forgiven and then know that God has made us his sons and daughters. Hallelujah. What a truth. Why don't you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this glorious passage. Thank you for these three parables that, like a diamond, we can look at in, at different angles and they say different things about, about you and about us. And we just praise you um, so much for the gift of your word. Thank you that we get to open up the very words of Jesus. Uh, thank you for the, the blessing it's been going through Luke's gospel together. And God, I thank you so much, Lord, that even though we've squandered um, in so many ways, squandered the life that you've given us, thank you so much that you, even though we deserve death, Lord, you give us life, that you restore our dignity, that you cover our shame, that you care for our wounds, Lord. And thank you that one day we'll, we'll actually be able to peer behind the curtain of heaven and actually, we'll actually be able to partake of the party, we'll actually be able to go in and and eat with you and feast with you and drink with you and laugh with you and we long for that day lord but we thank you that we already know how the story ends lord thank you that we already know that that's where we're headed god and i thank you that we can we can draw upon um the blessing that is ours in christ even when our lives are really hard lord even when our lives are difficult even when we're going through stuff that makes it difficult to believe that you're our good father thank you that we know how it ends lord and Thank you so much that we, we can trust that not only will you restore our joy in, in this life, but that you'll give us eternal joy in heaven. So, yeah, we thank you so much for these great words, Father. and We just pray that you guide the rest of our time together. Thank you that we get to share the table together after the service. We get to eat together. I just pray that there'd be something of the joy of heaven around those tables uh, downstairs as we, as we get to do that. I just pray that you lead and guide the rest of our time, God. In your great name, amen.